At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They get it to Paul. They're down one. Guarded by Covington. This is the matchup Paul wants. He wants... They're playing for the last shot? He wants Adams on the other side. Westbrook with the interception, but it goes to Shea. Shea attacking Covington. Here's Dort. Dort to win it. No. And it's blocked by Harden. James Harden with the defensive stop. Echoes echoes of Manu Ginobili blocking James Harden all those years ago on a, on a potential series winning, on a game shifting shot. Well, come on to another completely ridiculous Game 7 edition of Dunked On. This time, it was the Houston Rockets somehow finally escaping a clutch game against their nemesis, Chris Paul and the Thunder. It was a P.J. Tucker floater of all things that, that won the game for the Houston Rockets on offense. And then in a role reversal, it was Russell Westbrook and James Harden making plays on the final possession on defense, including James Harden blocking a Lou Dort three-pointer that could have won the game for the Thunder. And just a, another one of these completely insane Game 7s that I enjoyed every single second of, other than the last two of the first half. Yeah, and you had a lot of it to enjoy. The stat from Mike Bowie of Impredictable that the final minute of regulation took ex- took 16 minutes of real time in both games today. Two crazy endings that we're going to talk about both of. And for me, yeah, that last play with Harden, a great recovery block on Lou Dort. Echoes to me, though, a different angle of when Harden himself was blocked by Manu Ginobili in that memorable 2017 series and as you said you know like there was the great defense Russell Westbrook standing at the nail basically leaving Shea Gilgis Alexander open to to get Chris Paul to pick up his dribble and then a big defensive play on the final inbound where he took away the pass to Gallinari then functionally took away the pass to Stephen Adams that wouldn't have really gone anywhere anyway because it would have been Stephen Adams with um, with a second to go but yeah I mean some big plays stepping up for those guys and that really did fit the theme of some genuinely surprising contributions in this game not necessarily unsurprising contributors but but surprising contribution you heard our call uh, of that last second play on the nba cast we'll get into that more but i mean down the end there was that crazy play where chris paul tried to fall down against Eric Gordon, and then Steven Adams made a great play to force Gordon to turn it over. Then 
Chris Paul gets cut off by Harden. Harden's individual defense these last really three games has been awesome. The best I've ever seen him play. Like he actually has cut guys off, made plays, which is amazing considering how he just got absolutely torched at the end of game three by Paul and to a little bit of a lesser extent in game four and came back and it seemed clear that he didn't have as much juice for offense but with him getting lit up by Paul I think he came back with a renewed defensive mindset and so he actually cuts off Paul flops to try to get the charge doesn't get it and then Paul has a mid-ranger just the perfect shot that he loves that he missed it short there's another mad scramble for the rebound and it so that was a, a crazy exchange yeah and that was a huge rebound by Robert Covington by the way yeah absolutely and so the Rockets get a timeout they are up one after that tucker floater had happened with 125 remaining that was the winning points in the end you also had schroeder missing a long three there was another scramble for the rebound before gordon got it and turned it over at half court uh russell westbrook missed a couple of layups late uh, well i want to actually rough. i want to actually talk about so you you brought up the covington defensive rebound rockets call timeout westbrook misses a driving two steven adams gets the rebound and okc has the ball down one with tw- about 26 seconds to go and what what stunned me at the time is usually the what you do is you move you don't have to rush but you move quickly because that gives you more bites at the apple and there was a distinct lack of hurry by OKC they end up getting you know I get you could say they end up getting little but Lou Dort did hit six three-pointers in this game but I mean it wasn't it wasn't the cleanest look in the world and so I didn't like that process from them I know Chris Paul in particular is a remarkable deliberate player but it's not like this was some sort of nuggets jazz game you know any game before game seven situation where last shot wins where you know you you're expected you know points per possession is over one this is a a a real slog of a game overall and so i i think that there were a few process things from billy donovan overall that i really didn't like and that was an underappreciated one is just passing the time and not giving themselves enough outs well, yeah, and then you saw there at the end of the shot clock, Dort had to fire that shot. They had no choice. Harden blocked it, and then they didn't have any time to come back down again. I mean, they fouled immediately. They did a great job of not letting much time come off. Well, before we get the to foul. the foul, let's talk about that crazy call. We're doing the we're doing the game live, and Harden blocks Dort. And I noticed relatively quickly that Harden touched the ball, having not reestablished. And what I missed was because partially because of what they were showing was that Dort had stepped out of bounds too. So when he touched the ball trying to recover it and throw it off Harden which he missed because Harden did the jumping splits and actually the ball missed Harden's legs entirely so the correct call was that it was out on it was out on Dort before the miss and throw out and so actually that was a big help to the Thunder because instead of it being let's call it like 1.5 seconds left they moved it to 2.7 yeah but still very little time in the end they had 1.2 Rockets then did an awesome job of denying the ball inbounds. First, there was a foul that was committed on Gallinari. The telecast said it was on Harden. I think it was actually on Eric Gordon grabbing Danilo Gallinari, and that could have been a killer if it had happened before the ball got inbounded, but instead they called timeout. Everyone thought a timeout had been called. No, in fact, it was actually a foul beforehand. So the rule there is one shot and the ball out of bounds, which is supposed to be a deterrent on those plays to fouling before the ball is inbounded because usually in that situation the team that's like trying to deny the ball inbounds and might foul is down and they're trying to get a five second violation or 
something here though if that had been a regular foul it could have hurt it could have helped the thunder of course the thunder then missed the free throw with Gallinari and so it ends up not really mattering but that only would have put them within one it wouldn't have mattered in the end so I mean that that's something that maybe the league might want to look at because if you're the Rockets and you're up two there I mean I guess your problem then is that a two could beat you and that's the deterrent but why would you want to penalize the Thunder more for a foul that's before the inbounds that's supposed to be a worse penalty it's actually a less severe penalty so that's something that they should look at but then the Rockets deny the ball inbounds again they never really even got a clean catch Westbrook went off the inbounder he first denies Gallinari who was the obvious target of the play because he's really the only guy with the size and the high release who can get a shot off in that situation with one second left and no dribble it looked like they ran it initially for Paul but that might have just been dummy action and you know if they'd been open I'm sure they would have thrown it to him but uh, Gallo just wasn't quick enough to get open they did a great job of denying him and then they had to just with the timeouts not there they had to try to get it into Steven Adams and maybe get it back to the inbounder but there wasn't time for that and Westbrook after denying Gallo also went after the ball and knocked it away from Adams and that was it for the game and Westbrook had also gotten a deflection on the last possession of the game before uh, everything led to the Dort block by Harden so those two guys who have just been very terrible at many times in their career defensively saved the Rockets on defense at the end to go back to the thread that I started laying out about unlikely contributions I thought that that was one of the most striking parts of this game is that there were three different players who hit five or more three-pointers in this game Eric Gordon good shooter but he's had so much trouble since you know at various points this year Robert Covington goes six for 11 and Lou Dort goes six for 12 and so I mean that's a lot of a lot of found money from the Thunder. Dort also had a couple of spectacular cuts that led to a couple of his baskets. Also was four of six from the free throw line, and so getting thirty points from Lou Dort that's a whole lot of found money for OKC. Oh, absolutely, and it, particularly at the beginning of the game. But credit here's what you can say ultimately: credit the Rockets for not deviating from the game plan. Yes. Harden did say at, in his interview at the end, I really tried to close out on him at the end and and that was a, a big deal. But uh because he'd been hitting shots, but they didn't I mean they weren't going to just like stick to him and in fact Harden took away Steven Adams underneath and then had a great close out on Dort who doesn't have the quickest release and got the block with his big wingspan. Um and so they still managed to muck things up reasonably well for everyone else. It was an extremely slow-paced game by today's standards and the thunder did shoot it crazy well 47 percent, but they did miss a bunch of them late and I mean, dort also had like a bunch of nice drives but he finished 10 out of 21 he missed some that he would love to have back he also had four turnovers and five fouls he was incredible on defense he completely shut down Harden again who was four of 15 and one of nine from three-point range tom haverstrow i'm sorry no it was kevin o'connor of the ringer who noted that Harden in the playoffs the last five years has shot 24 percent from three in the fourth quarter in overtime which is atrocious and he missed some okay looks but dort also was really defending him extremely well but as you noted Harden was still plus nine uh, and and was very important to what they're doing but the one thing i thought was fascinating if you look at the minutes westbrook only played 34 harden only played 37 they were fresh enough defensively at the end to make the winning plays and man 
James Harden better be thanking his lucky stars that he made that defensive play because this was just another of the arrows that could have been fired at him of just shrinking from the moment and you know he didn't do anything in the fourth I don't know if did he even score in the fourth quarter maybe hit like some free throws or something uh he did not take a free throw he made he made two shots inside the arc he missed his only three yeah so only three shots in the fourth quarter is not that much Russell Westbrook had eight and only made one of those eight and Harden you know was criticized for not being part of things at the end of the game probably rightfully so in game six that they went to Westbrook the good news was although Westbrook finished nine to 20 he really kept them in the game for a large portion of this which was huge uh when Harden just didn't really have it going the entire way it got he's looking better at least you know didn't have a crazy number of turnovers didn't take as many wild shots although there certainly were a, a few of those you mentioned Covington I mean this is the second straight awesome game in a row from him he had five steals and three blocks in the last game three steals and three blocks in this one and you mentioned the six of 11 three-point shooting and tied for the lead at four the Houston Rockets with 21 points in this one and Gordon also had 21 as well I mean they really picked up up Harden in this game to be sure yeah and for the for the Thunder Shea Gilgis Alexander definitely had his moments in this one offensively had a, had a big shot late though we also had a couple of big mistakes late had a miss had a turnover but he still limited defensively and also what is important you know he, he, Shea took three out of he made three out of four threes but he passed on a couple and that's even more damaging for Oklahoma City when they're playing you know Lou Dort hit six to twelve in this game but he's not a reliable three-point shooter the guys who can shoot them have to take them and so Shea's you know there isn't like a single goat necessarily in this game from Oklahoma City's perspective but when we're kind of thinking about what happened in the bubble and more specifically what happened in the series I'm disappointed in Shea yeah he was the one who uh threw that pass to Dort at the end um and yeah particularly on defense I mean he was Westbrook Harden like uh, Westbrook had like an easy right-handed drive past him in the second half like pretty much anytime he got on anybody who could do anything in this series he was complete meat defensively and so he's he's got to get stronger he plays very upright a lot of people really talk a lot about his defensive potential and I thought he was a little overrated in college on that end that he gave up a lot of blow buys and he gave up just a ton of blow buys in what was kind of this isolation series they also gave up the low resistance switch late with him i think that might have been like harden's only drive that he had in the fourth where dort was doing a great job staying attached and they just decided to switch shea onto him for no reason um was that the one that um was it eric gordon hit a three i'm trying to remember i know i know they got a good shot out of it. yeah yeah somebody got a corner three off of off of it at the end it um might have been pj yeah uh well and one of, but, one of the yeah. other really interesting dynamics in this game well we were wondering who billy donovan was going to play and for how long steven adams 34 minutes had a couple of offensive rebounds, but didn't really deter much at the rim other than a, maybe a couple of Russell Westbrook drives. Gallinari turned back into a pumpkin, had that stretch in game six where he had a bunch of shots, but then was it another rough one. Only six attempts from the field, missed that only free throw attempt, and four total points in 27 minutes. And other than Schroeder, who, you know, had a less efficient game, but I thought overall, you know, he was kind of playing the same thing, just some of the shots didn't fall. The guy who looked the best for me was Darius Baisley, and Baisley only played 15 minutes. They were plus nine, and he Yes, it's not starters versus starters. It's all all those sorts of things. But Billy Donovan was very, to me, was very conservative in a couple of ways that I don't think did him any favors. Well, and I don't think they played a single minute without a center on the floor in this game, did they? They did not. And they'd had success with that unit. I do think that Donovan ultimately could have gone to a little bit more imaginative groups to try and see what would work. Like, give 
basically a shot here uh with some of this and dort was really good obviously but and he did play nerland zoel more but yeah to not give basically a shot not give gallo at center or really i guess dort at center any kind of uh, looks in real minutes that was a, a surprise to me i know steven adams has a lot of equity in the organization and they probably felt like they couldn't well and then the other part of that is that schroeder yes he played 35 minutes but he had the is that the miritich the reverse bogans in both where he Schroeder, yeah it's the miritich the yeah. miritich where he he played everything other than the beginning of both halves and first of all that's more tiring and second of all like shooter would have had advantages to press one of the most interesting dynamics for me of this entire series was shooter having these advantages because he's quick and because he can attack including on pj tucker he's just blurring by on these right hand drives also had one on robert covington late and just starting him going to some of those lineups especially when there are places you know like yes you could there are limitations to like starting door the four maybe you get gallo frustrated as he's a potential potential unrestricted free agent but at a certain point the coach's job has to be to win this series especially on an older like on this kind of a team and i was very frustrated that donovan just you know like with schroeder with Baisley, even some stuff with new orleans as well he just he only went to like it kind of seemed like he knew what his best lineups were but he just not even in a game seven he didn't go there a few other notes on houston here coming up in just a second after this so man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm going to be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed 
to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Houston did do what we criticized them for not doing at the end of game six and with Eric Gordon in particular on Chris Paul they had him stay much more attached to Gordon sure they got some cross matches and Chris Paul hit some big threes earlier in the fourth and he finished three of four with two assists and two turnovers in the fourth so not quite as dominating particularly in the last two minutes as he had been but Gordon had like a big strip of Paul he had a block at the free throw line on Shea Gilgis Alexander, he was really awesome defensively again, just like he was in the playoffs last year against Donovan Mitchell. So, and a lot of times they would try to set that screen with Covington's man. They really recognized that Covington needed to be their help defender. They did a good job of just zoning up and keeping him out of that screening action and then forcing someone like, say, Schroeder, who's not a particularly willing screener, to actually make contact on Eric Gordon and force the switch and and force him to run more time down. So I I thought that was a nice adjustment from Houston. They saw what we had all been complaining about it as well uh, in at the end of game six. And so just keeping those matchups a little bit tighter and only switching switching when they had to I thought was a big reason why they're able to defend better against the Thunder at the end invariably a point of discussion for this game will be Harden's limited offensive performance even though he did have that big block at the end do you have any particularly salient explanations for his struggles I mean Lou Dort is an obvious one but I mean for me part of it is that he just never really got into that normal rhythm partially because of Dort and partially because they were running their offense differently against the Thunder I think a big part of it was that they went away from the screen roll a little bit. Also, part of that is at the end of games, their starting unit, the best guy for him to play pick and roll with is Jeff Green because that's really the only guy who has any kind of gravity as a roll man. You know, Covington can do a little pick and pop. That He got a little better as a screener and he was hot, but it's still not a, an amazing matchup there. And so it was a little harder for him to get the matchup. I thought Schroeder did a little bit better of a job on him as well. And he did, Harden did have one hard left-handed drive at the expense of Dort in the second half. But Dort just does an amazing job he really could not get anything going couldn't create the space I mean part of his problem too is just that he wasn't making the step back and so that takes away a lot of the threat that sets up his drive at this point in his career so uh I mean not hitting the shot is number one I mean those are decent looks not like just completely ridiculous also doing a pretty good job of not fouling him and uh fatigue and just you know I mean whatever it is that seems to happen to James Harden in these big games too I, I'm I'm not sure whether it's a mental thing I'm not sure whether it's a some feature of his game that just doesn't play well in these moments I don't know whether it's fatigue 
but at least credit to him for staying in it mentally and making i mean really in the whole second half he moved his feet extremely i can't remember him getting beat off the dribble one time in the second half and then to make that big play at the end it was big despite the fact that you know it was his main job is to score and he didn't really do that in this in this game do you have anything else i'm pretty much done oh austin rivers only played a little bit but he just couldn't hit a shot i thought his defensive effort was pretty good but just missing missing five shots in seven minutes yeah he was their best guy on dennis schroeder and they would usually bring him in at the same time that schroeder would come in but yeah when he wasn't hitting shots they took him out and uh pj tucker again was just really outstanding as a help defender you mentioned i thought his approach against shooter was bad letting him get to his right hand in addition to the fact that he just wasn't fast enough to keep up with him Oh, can I mention Schroeder's shot chart briefly? Yes. Two of four in the restricted area, missed all three of his floaters, one of four from mid-range, and two of six from three, all but one of which were above the break. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, Dennis Schroeder, he won us a couple of playoff games, and, like, you know, you're an idiot to not like that trade. Well, okay, he sucked last year, number one, the year that they, they acquired him to actually help. Like, this year was supposed to be a rebuilding year. And then, hey, he was terrible in these last two games. So, and actually these last three games, because he got thrown out of game five. So, yes, he had two and a half good games in the series, maybe three, I can't remember, if he had a good one in the first two he was obviously really good in three and four in the beginning of five and he did give them another guy who could do something off the dribble which they desperately needed but if you're looking back at this series as evidence that that was a trade that worked out and that they should give up that first round pick which admittedly is lotto protected over only one year and they may not give up here's the other part of it part of the reason we hated the schroeder trade was because it made the thunder so much more expensive if you want to take credit for schroeder being better than expected remember that the the Thunder so dramatically underachieved relative to expectations that they traded away their expensive players, and so then that the, the contract like the contract cost size didn't matter as much. So yeah, if we're talking about this in the idea of Schroeder potentially being a part of a great Thunder team, like part of it was that he didn't elevate them enough, and part of it is that they they changed the team around it to make it to make his contract less onerous because they weren't paying the tax on it, and you know that was a, a big part of the deal for us. We didn't expect the Thunder to trade Russell Westbrook and trade Paul George by you know that quickly yeah and also there's the opportunity cost of what else they could have gotten with that first round pick that they traded and there's also the fact that they don't perform like they got him to be the backup point guard when Russell Westbrook was off the floor when they would always get killed and he failed in that role uh, as well he really worked better as just a pure scorer attacking from the wings in this group with another ball handler that wasn't what he was actually really acquired to do so yeah I think to say that he had a few good games in the series and yeah he's been way better than expected this year he's made himself into a good player he deserves credit for that we I will admit I didn't see that coming but that doesn't make the theory of the trade necessarily any better and it failed for the year that it mattered which was last year i am a little bit disappointed that we aren't going to get to see i mean i think the rockets are a much better you know a a a much better team and a and theoretically a more challenging matchup for the lakers we'll talk about that on thursday night's podcast but it would have been fun to see lou dort face a very different star wing you know lebron james and james harden are not the same type of are not the same type lebron is so much bigger how would dort have fared there what would schroeder have done how would chris Paul have looked and it would have been fascinating to see to see all of that stuff and I think that the Rockets making it to the next round is a better it's a better series it, it works at, you know for for all those perspective but I would have enjoyed some of the thought perspective of a Thunder Lakers series yeah I don't think it would have been close but it would have been interesting to see Dort trying to guard someone bigger and see whether he really is like Tony Allen the second or not 
Two other things I wanted to talk about. Chris Paul was upset at being called for a delay of game, but he was grifting again, as usual. He went down to tie his shoe, which he had already done, by the way, earlier in the bubble. I think it was in this series to just delay things so that someone could look at it and they could decide whether to challenge or maybe the referees would decide to review it. He tried that little trick again and he got caught for a delay of game and they gave up a, a technical foul. Now, Paul also has absolutely nothing to complain about because he got another, maybe the most egregious one to date, where with one second left in the half at half court, Chris Paul decides, oh, I'm actually, I'm not going to try and go towards the basket. I'm going to get to this crucial real estate of the sideline here and just see if I can run into Robert Covington and if it'll get called a foul. And Robert Covington did a good job. He didn't actually make contact with Chris Paul, but Chris Paul, the anguish on his face apparent well before any contact even would have happened, staggers and goes down and gets the call and gets two complete bullshit free throws at the end of the half. Throw that in with the charge call on Eric Gordon where Gallo, that one clearly should have been overturned. That was a great challenge. Gallo was not in his path. That's a, where I still think these get called wrong is Eric Gordon was going across the lane. Gallo was between him and the basket, but Gordon wasn't really going towards the basket. The only contact takes place between Gallo's forearm and Eric Gordon, and then he flings himself backward using that forearm and technically was it close enough that there maybe it could have justified the call on the floor I mean, maybe i guess but it definitely to me was not the right call he's not in his path i thought a worse call was overturned on Giannis in the bucks game which we'll talk about in a second that would have been his fourth in the third quarter where Giannis, at least he kind of got his elbow into the guy's chest and you could have called that but i thought that was a better call than this one obviously not the same officiating group so i thought but particularly that one the bridge to nowhere foul by paul at the end of the half to get two free throws it's just the referees like i've got to just watch film like they have to they have to get it you there has to be a heightened sense of proof now for these total grifters like paul and lowry and smart particularly on these plays where nobody in their right mind would ever commit a foul it's just not the kind of play that should be rewarded i hate it and chris paul is a wonderful wonderful player but i just cannot stand that aspect of his game and for that particular aspect, I am very glad that I don't have to watch it anymore because my head almost exploded on the NBA cast when I saw that play. Let's turn now to the first game of the night. Another completely ridiculous affair, though partially for some of the wrong reasons. Miami 116, Milwaukee 114. It certainly did not appear that it was going to be that close, but Milwaukee is in big time trouble. We'll talk about the end of the game in a second, but I, I think where we need to start is just talking about what this means. Like, are the Bucks done in this series? They're a little better off because at least they didn't just lose two home games. But, and Giannis maybe found a little bit more of something towards the end. It had like a semi-decent statistical game. But, I mean, do you think the Bucks figured anything out in the second half? Like, are they going to play better in this series or is this series over? I don't think this series is over, but I think we're getting close. And remember that a team that goes down 2-0, even if it's neutral site, they have to win four out of five to advance. And even if Milwaukee is a 60-40 favorite, let's say, and I'm not saying they are, in each individual game, that's still a lot to ask. You have, you know, you need four out of those five to go your way. And 
the key stat for me in this one is something that is a is a holdover, and that's Milwaukee's half court offensive rating. In this game, the Bucks scored 0.9 points per possession in half court situations, and they're not they're not successfully running enough. Some of that was that they weren't getting enough stops in the early going, but you know, so the, so they can't get the feedback loops. If they can't score in the half court, and they looked especially in the non Giannis minutes in the first quarter, which were just moribund. Like to to see that in against Miami and and it's not like Miami is playing you know like the this all five like great defenders or anything like that to see Milwaukee struggle the way that they have to me that's very concerning in the idea that they can win four out of five. I agree with you. I mean, there's two things that give you some hope. Number one, they at least started getting some points in the paint again. Like Giannis was ten of eleven at the rim. Uh, I think he started to find a, a little bit of something here. Uh, battled foul trouble again. And you can argue just based on the shot locations that the Bucks uh, did a little bit better. Now, the big problem for them is they're not getting enough threes. At least they got some stuff at the rim, though, where they're 21 and 27. And they also got to the foul line for 39 attempts, although some may quibble with the last three of those, <laughs> but uh, although not me. And they also got 17 offensive rebounds. Like they played harder, they played with desperation, particularly after that first quarter when Miami put up 38 points. The Bucks defended well enough to win it in this game they held them to only 14 shots at the rim although they did make 11 and it was the three-point shooting particularly above the break by the heat 38 percent uh and the bucks were only 28 percent but the heat got up 45 threes to their 25 which almost never happens to milwaukee particularly when you consider the advantage that the bucks had in the possession game off the offensive glass with 10 more offensive rebounds but they're starting to defend better. Jimmy Butler, they held him to 13 points, and a bunch a bunch of those were just intentional fouls late. So, I mean, he really, I think, had eight points throughout most of the game. Goran Dragic, they finally slowed him down just a little bit as well. And so, I mean, really the way they have to win this series is on defense. I didn't think they were going to score particularly efficiently in this series. And so they got to just really... I mean. If they could just play defensively the way they played in the last three quarters, I think they'll be in decent shape to win games. But as you mentioned, they got to win four out of five. So that's that's really, like, I, I don't think that, like, and obviously if Miami wins the next game, it's done. They are going to play with a ton of desperation. Maybe they are capable of playing well enough to just completely turn this thing around. Like, I mean, that's that's the one thing that gives you something is, like, these, this team is capable of dominant performances. But it's been some time now since we've seen it in the bubble. And they are losing in some of the ways that you would expect them to lose. So, yes, they are in trouble. And what is what is your panic rating for the Bucks right now? At least an 8, probably an 8.5. And you, now, can, you can argue it yeah. should be higher, honestly. And we know the numbers of teams coming back from down 2-0. I probably still would give the Milwaukee Bucks just about a better chance of winning down 2-0 than just about any team, like, at that time that I would have given them, particularly because... They were very close to winning this game. They tend have tended in all series, but that Raptors series with this group to get better as series go along. And, uh, and I'll also say this too, Danny. Like if they win the next game, how would you feel about it if this is 2-1? Would you favor the Heat at that point? Let's say Milwaukee wins the next game by 10, which they're fully capable of doing. I think I still would favor Miami because uh, yeah. remember remember this. Milwaukee played a lot better. Yes, Miami hit a bunch of threes, but you know, 17-45 in terms of percentage, the 38% given who was shooting them. You know, Dragic, Duncan, Robinson, Tyler Hero, all those guys had eight or more. Jay Crowder had 12. That'll be a point we discussed. But remember that before all the insanity happened in the end of this game, Miami was up. They were up seven points with a minute and a half to go, and they were up nine with a minute 45 to go. So even with everything that we just said from 
Milwaukee, it took a miracle for them to get back into the game for those late calls to Matt. And a miracle on their part and a series of insane errors from Miami's part. So, you know, if we're shifting the, if we're kind of talking about the equilibrium here, Miami has a lot, a lot of the advantages that Miami, that Miami has cultivated here aren't necessarily going away. They can get toned down by Milwaukee playing better defensively, but this is, you know, but I think that if that if it goes, you know, barring an injury or something like that, I if it were, let's say Milwaukee wins by 10, I'm still favoring Miami to win the series. Yeah, obviously it would depend what the nature of that is sure. as well. And if it starts looking like, man, okay, Miami's really struggling to score against these guys. If Bud makes some stylistic adjustments and they start figuring some stuff out, you know, that, that could maybe change things also. Well, let's get to, you talked about Bud making some stylistic adjustments. Let's talk about Budenholzer being Budenholzer. That was one of the important threads of this one was Giannis only played 36 minutes dealt briefly with foul trouble in the in this I believe that was the second quarter and then Chris Middleton only played 33 he scored 23 in those 33 minutes 6 to 15 from the field 11 of 12 from the line he drew seven fouls on the heat and Giannis drew 10 but just going away you know like giving feeling so comfortable that oh I'm gonna sit these guys and you know they're gonna be they're gonna be rested like this maybe this some somehow they have better rest intel than anybody else and you know not playing their best players significant minutes i think it's i think it cost them here and i think it will continue to yeah now worth noting that nobody on either team played more than 36 minutes in this game butler crowd and crowder were only 36 Dragic, who yeah he's 35 years old so that's a little different story than Giannis and middleton and they did bring Middleton back in with three fouls at the end of the second quarter. And he actually went on a nice run to get them back into contact, at least to some extent, at the end of that second quarter. And Giannis is a high foul guy. He got the three in the first half and finished with four. So it did, did better in the second. Um, you know, Brooke Lopez, 32 minutes. Bledsoe coming off the hamstring injury, 31. He did at least play West Matthews more and Connaughton less. Connaughton was negative 19 in 12 minutes. I mean, I might just, I think the next adjustment to me would be just don't play Connaughton and DiVincenzo at all. Corver actually, I think, has given them some good minutes. He's given them a little bit of a theory of the offense. He was plus 11 in this one. And I think he can hold up reasonably well defensively. Let's, we'll see whether the Heat target him more. He can't really be on the floor at the very end of games because they can just try to switch Butler onto him. But, uh, and just go with, you know, basically an eight man rotation instead of an 11 man rotation. I'm sorry, a, a 10 man rotation. But uh, I mean, the big thing that I question here is just why wouldn't you at least, maybe just in the regular season, why not just like try Giannis for 40 minutes in some of these games and just see whether he can do it or not? And yes, if he really, you know, your sports science data says he gets really tired at the end, we can't, just can't do it. All right. But we don't even know whether he can do it or not yet. You know, that's kind of what one of the problems to me. Well, and remember, playoff games have so many stoppages these games are taking forever yeah. that the, some of the rules don't necessarily apply in the same way and i mean if it, especially when i mean they they actually the bucks they they were outscored by seven in Giannis's minutes and then they outscored the heat when he sat but i thought that were there were some anomalies there especially considering how bad the bucks offense was early when Giannis was off four but i mean he's he's the best player in this series he Giannis, i mean put up 29 14 and three in this one only turned it over twice and 
And also, he, you know, he's the best defensive player in the league, you know, with defensive player of the year. And impactful as help defender actually did have a couple of good possessions on Jimmy Butler and ISO, which cracked me up a little bit. And you ha- I think you have to lean on him, especially when they don't, the Bucks don't have appropriate substitutes. You know, this isn't a circumstance where there's somebody else who conflicts with Giannis and, oh, separating out those guys, maybe you can give them, you know, give them a little bit of a burst. There is no stagger with Giannis. It's him and then everything else. No, that's absolutely right. For Miami, Jay Crowder, he he took a few more shots maybe from three than you might have liked, although they were starting to stagnate a little bit. He had to take some of those. But in particularly defensively, he looks like the guy that he was in Boston. He's getting in the passing lanes, doing a good job there. He was guarding Giannis, then he switched over to guarding Chris Middleton as well. He's shooting the ball well. He shot it well in game one, and you know, certainly is always comfortable taking these shots, but his shot looks a, a lot better to me, and that's been a huge revelation, particularly now with Andre Iguodala. Didn't finish this game due to a sprained ankle, and we'll see what his status is. You know, I think, I don't know that he's been giving them that much, frankly, like as, as particularly because they put him on Giannis, and Andre just, I don't think he wants to like he's never going to take a charge on Giannis and that's one of the best options that you have Tom Haversher wrote about that today and because Andre doesn't take any charges yeah he'll get the strip on him sometimes but he's also like going to just kind of back up and let Giannis get in for some dunks um you know I think Bam Butler and Crowder are probably your guys what did you make of Butler's game really weird for him to just you know three of eight from the field and you know really didn't even try to attack at all at the end of games I mean maybe the thought was that other guys had it going he's just he's such a weird player sometimes man like sometimes he's just oh i'm such a warrior i'm gonna take over last game he's like i told guys i'm not gonna be passing it too much like was he just like something was wrong physically he didn't feel it or like after he had such a dominating game last time it seemed like I don't know if they were going to him and he just wanted to be more of a team player. He was not very assertive at all. It was really odd. I think now is probably the time to get to the completely ridiculous end of this game. So I, I brought up before about how, you know, this the circumstance, I'm, I'll, I'll set it on the table. Br- Brooke Lopez... After a Tyler Hero miss, Brooke Lopez fouls Bam Adebayo what, on what looked like it was going to be a Milwaukee fast break. So that means that the Heat have the ball, or they have two free throws for Bam, up up eight with a minute 56 to go. Bam splits the free throws. And then, amazingly enough, you know, thinking, like, it's a nine-point game. Milwaukee misses their next shot. Brooke Lopez gets a pretty open three, misses it, but then the ball goes out of bounds. And then Giannis gets the foul. And so this starts the thing of like, basically, it's, you know, the idea of you need miracle is down nine with two minutes to go. You need to score quickly and ideally need the other team to not score quickly. And largely speaking, that's what happened. Yeah. And it wasn't like the Heat didn't score. They actually scored two more points in that stretch too. We thought, oh, it's like, it, it's they're back to four now. Uh, they gave Giannis an and one, which was a really bad foul. They almost gave him another and one on that dunk too, but uh they came over and at least got him hard in the arm. That was Bam fouling out. But Bam hits a jumper to put him up six with 55 left, so they're still in control. And then Giannis misses a free throw down six as well. But what I always say about these crazy comebacks, when they're in this situation, two things have to happen, it seems like. Turnovers? Yeah, okay. That was uh, that definitely happened as uh, they got a quick dunk from Giannis. And then the inbound to Butler, they have two timeouts left with like 10 seconds left. They inbound the ball. They're up four as well. Yeah, maybe you try to get the ball inbounds quickly just to not use a timeout. You know, you never know when you're going to need them. And as it turned out, 
they were able to advance the ball and that became critical after the Middleton free throws because they saved that time but they sure as hell didn't know that at the time you're up six but they get it into Butler Kyle Korver of all people who was on for offense makes a great trap of Butler in the corner and at that point Butler absolutely should have called a timeout he's falling out of bounds and then he tries to just throw it back to Dragic Brooke Lopez intercepts that he had a chance to throw it out to guys wide open for a three uh, but instead goes for the layup to bring him within two and at that point the heat get a timeout they foul immediately butler only makes one out of two free throws but still 7.7 left and then you're thinking okay do the heat foul or not the bucks have used their last timeout so you think maybe they would foul to try to prevent a three-pointer but you out of buy your best rebounder is out of the game the bucks have these massive guys who can go get offensive rebounds so in an intentional miss on the second shot someone could just go get a tip in and tie the game for you so that was, that was a little bit of a concern i think i would have not fouled in that situation for that reason so they inbound it hero does a great job forcing corver inside the arc and then they throw it back to middleton middleton shoots the three from opposite side of the floor but pretty much the same spot where he hit that ridiculous shot in game one of 2018 against the celtics to tie it and send it in overtime but Dragic fouls him what did you think of that foul call I thought it was absolutely the correct call. Dragic was moving forward. Middleton didn't have a landing area. I thought it was not not like an unambiguous call, but I absolutely thought it was the correct. Well, and actually before, actually you talk about that and then I'll bring up my issue with Miami's personnel in this play. Yeah, so Dragic, it looked like if you just freeze frame it, it looks like Dragic has his arms straight up and he's not moving. But he was moving forward with his chest into Middleton space. Middleton, it wasn't like some ridiculous jump forward call seeking play like he was making a legitimate attempt to hit the shot and Dragic got into his airspace with his chest like he did move forward even though he had his arms up and so yeah I thought that that was a a good call he definitely made contact with his chest while he was moving forward before he landed he certainly affected the shot so I thought that was the right call at the time, I was I was a little bit frustrated. It seemed weird that both Dragic and Tyler Hero were on the on the floor, but the context is incredibly important here. Bam Adebayo had already fouled out. He committed that sixth foul a few seconds before in game time, about 10 minutes before in real time. And Iguodala had the turned ankle, so he was unavailable. So there weren't really any clear-cut options there. I mean, yeah, maybe you go with Kelly Olynyk, but you don't want Duncan Robinson on the floor. He was not on the floor. So it was, I, I, I guess it was just making the best of a bad situation when you consider who was available for Miami. So then we go down the other direction and we talked about on the NBA cast of they're going to go to Jimmy Butler. It's a tie game. When do you run the double team at him? You know, like, is it two seconds? Is it 1.5 where you basically say right now there is not time for a pass. So we're going to just run at him and double team. And Giannis did exactly that. He got there. He really bothered the shot, but he was just a little bit out of control. And he just touched Butler after, well after he'd released the shot. Not in a dangerous way, not underneath him, but he does hit his torso a little bit. And if they hadn't just given that call to Middleton, I don't know if that call gets made. This one was not what, like the Middleton one is letter of the law. And maybe you could say, okay, he touched him with his hand and that's just, that's just gotta be a foul. You you can't leave it on the referee to determine whether the touch actually affected him or not. He did touch him. He hit him right in the chest. I shouldn't say hit him. That's probably an overstatement. But in terms of like what I would like to see be a foul, I thought that that was a foul that shouldn't have been called. But 
you know, with the Middleton one just having been called, perhaps it's totally understandable that it was. And so then we got this weird piece of history where Jimmy Butler becomes only the third guy in the first one since 1979 to take free throws in a playoff game with zero time left on. He only has to hit one of two. He ends up hitting both and thus the end of the game. So I got a few more notes uh, on the overall game here. Uh, They tried to post up Giannis first uh, on the side is which is something we had talked about and he immediately goes to a fadeaway and airballs it the first three Giannis shots and the first three buck shots not all of which were by Giannis failed to draw a rim uh Goran Dragic was unbelievable again in the first half he had just some of these floaters along the lane line over Brook Lopez who's a really tough guy to shoot a floater over off the glass just a fantastic touch he's shooting threes off the dribble but his half and you know, Duncan Robinson got a few plays on this even Jimmy Butler got a roll to the basket on this the Bucks have the personnel to switch one through four at least one through three and they don't and you know Jimmy Butler was awesome in the last game so maybe you want to keep West Matthews and I thought West Matthews did an awesome job on Butler Agreed. to the extent Butler even tried him and that you wouldn't want to switch but they're giving up just like really easy actions like you know in a one-two pick and roll it's Eric Bledsoe and it's West Matthews right or if it, or if it's uh Jimmy Butler setting the screen for Dragic like let's, let's at least see whether Eric Bledsoe can do an okay job on Jimmy Butler right like he's one of the best defensive guards he's really strong he's got like a huge wingspan let's switch that at least and make Jimmy Butler prove that he can beat him one-on-one in an ISO I think Wes Matthews can do fine on Dragic same way but they probably gave up six or seven plays in the first half by not switching actions by guards they did like a little 21 action in the corner with Duncan Robinson that they didn't switch I mean that was like you know again it was a capable enough defender guarding Robinson it was I think it was Chris Middleton uh you, you could switch him on to Goran Dragic they don't and then uh Robinson gets a wide open three off of that again you know these are actions that NBA teams just generally switch particularly because I don't think that there's anyone on the heat who's just like so dominating one-on-one I know Butler had a good first game but uh I want to at least give Eric Bledsoe one possession to prove that he can not just get completely destroyed by Jimmy Butler. There is even like an Andre Iguodala, Jimmy Butler pick and roll where Iguodala found Jimmy Butler on a roll to the basket. I think it was either a foul or a layup. There was another play where they got a back door on those sorts of actions. Like it was really, and then they switched in the second half and they actually did start switching those actions. And lo and behold, they defended a lot better, right? I mean, to me, the Bucks. When you have a, the other thing too is they have like unbelievable rim protection yeah. on this team, so you should be able to hold up with maybe not your absolute most ideal matchup, but still a decent one there. So that was I thought they really put a lot of points uh, on the board. And Miami's just too good of an executing team on some of these plays. And credit Eric Spolstra for and the Heat for just dialing up these actions where they knew the Bucks weren't going to switch and they could get an advantage. So we talked. Um, any other notes that you had? Not really. Uh, so we talked about the idea of panic, but for the Bucks. I mean, you and I both think they should play their best players more. That you know, even even if dictated a little bit by foul trouble. Yeah. Anything else significant that you that you would really move for Milwaukee? They did it did they did play better, and I think they they you know even over the course of game two they found a little bit more. But is there anything else in particular that you point to? Well, I'm not sure this is something that would be an adjustment, but Giannis Antetokounmpo just hasn't been good enough as a passer. That's why they weren't getting the threes, and he certainly was very focused on getting his own offense, and he ultimately did. But he got some charges and some turnovers and he's just there's a lot of plays where he's just missing guys and this won't sound new because we talked about some of this same stuff going back to the Toronto series in particular and and part of the reason that he's not that great of a passer is you know he can make the plays for example if you're just like helping off him before he even drives right he'll throw the ball to the corner or something like that if you're if you're playing more towards the elbow on the corner guy but once he starts his move it's so violent and 
when you're defending him sometimes it's almost like you're a goalie defending a penalty kick where on his euro step or his spoon move you got to just pick a side and jump there and if you jump there if you guess right you'll get the charge if not he's just going to dunk on you but once he kind of commits to his move he's not really in control that's why he gets all these charges if you compare him say to someone like luca where you know luca is always under control that's why he can always make the passes because he's not just barreling headlong into somebody and he can kind of let the floor develop in front now luca is a preternatural player and he also has a good enough shooting where he can get a shoulder by guys further on the floor put his man in jail like that's never going to be what Giannis is going to do but i do think that Giannis maybe tighten up his handle a little bit or just have an understanding that particularly the pass back out to the top is going to be open a lot uh on the fast break the bucks need to tell their guards when Giannis has it to just dead fucking sprint into the corners and get there immediately because a lot of what's happening is Giannis kind of gets ahead of everyone maybe there'll be a guy on the wing but it's easier to close out to there right like if you force guys in transition defense to guard someone in the corner now you can't get it's much harder if you have two guys who have to guard a shooter in the corner it's way harder to get that three-man wall at the top of the key that Giannis can't get through and but I would say to Giannis stay under control a little bit more on those situations make two guys guard you and you should be able to throw it back up to the top like he had Middleton on a trail three in that situation where he just missed him Brooke Lopez be coming down for a trail three Brooke Brooke, uh you know I think they need to give him some more opportunities as well uh you know his post-ups have generally gone pretty well they really have not looked at that too much so that's another one that would stick out to me uh of just finding their lanes in transition and then of course i tweeted this out at nate duncan nba if you don't follow me this photo of they enter the ball into the post to Giannis and DiVincenzo is in the opposite corner first he tries to cut along the baseline at the exact same time that George Hill who entered the ball also cuts into the lane and like there's two two bucks guards have a foot in the paint as Giannis is trying to post up and then the other two guys on the floor are standing like holding hands at the top of the key right next to each other not moving like and this is a called play for a post up they just their spacing is just so bad and there's so many of these guys who make cuts to absolute nowhere and they just have not done a good enough job giving space to work and doing that against Miami is particularly egregious because they have very in tune defenders that understand what's going on and so it's the the Caspi cuts are even more damaging against Miami than most teams yeah and it's sometimes it's not even a cut it's just like they're just standing yeah, like under the standing basket. in the dunker spot yeah um and hey you might get an offensive rebound every once in a while that's great it looks really cool for a guard to get these offensive rebounds but every other possession you're killing the the team spacing and that you know as I was saying I wouldn't play DiVincenzo a single minute in the next game. he has not been good I think in any of these playoff games for the heat in terms of adjustments Kendrick Nunn has really struggled in these first couple of games I get the theory behind him where they want to just get a little bit more juice a little bit more scoring Dragic can't play a billion minutes uh but in you know they don't really have other guards necessarily and with Iguodala potentially unavailable maybe none will have to play but I thought he has really struggled particularly defensively against Bledsoe who I thought had a very nice game Bledsoe attacking the basket uh at least in the first half looked really good he cooled off in the second half but he had a couple of plays where guys were running up to set the screen for him and so then he would just reject the screen and attack with the help out of position because that guy was going guarding the screener who was running up and so he had a couple of blow buys there uh at none's expense in the second quarter so uh Uh, And Bledsoe tightened up their defense a little bit. They finally started defending a little bit better on Dragic, who was on fire in the beginning. Bledsoe still is just, you know, they gave up a couple of buckets where 
Chris Middleton is guarding Hero, and Hero tries to attack and doesn't get anywhere against Middleton, but Bledsoe just comes off of Dragic and just gives up a, an open three or or forces a help rotation, and that happened a couple times in the fourth. So, but I mean, Bledsoe is a very much a freelance defender, uh, but you know he didn't have a steal or a block in this game, and he's got to stay a little bit tighter. Well, and then there uh, was Chris, there was the, yeah, the, the other one was the play that drove me insane when Dragic drove and basically got to his left hand, and I was like, oh god, who let Dragic get to his left hand around the basket because there was a Bucks help defender there and it was Bledsoe and like of all people Eric Bledsoe who played with Dragic in Phoenix should know that that's exactly what Dragic wants to do and he just didn't execute the scouting report at all yeah now when Dragic was guarding Bledsoe Bledsoe did a good job of attacking with his athleticism on the other end um still absolutely zero of Chris Middleton trying to get him a matchup against Dragic or Hero he had a couple of plays against Hero I think but it wasn't really out of a an explicit attempt to get him that um, you know, the Bucks just don't like those kind of plays. I'd like to see more just straight up high pick and roll with Middleton and Giannis with everyone else really spaced out. Hey, don't put anyone else in the dunker spot there, for example. Like, don't have a guard in the dunker spot when you're running that play. And Middleton had eight assists. He continues to throw absolute lasers to the opposite side of the floor. He really just gives them the one guy in this team, because, you know, I think Giannis has not had the passing game going, um, who can really set guys up for those threes. And they got they to just do a better job of driving and kicking uh and get shots at the rim and threes they have not been able to combine that yet uh in this series and uh they also bucks turnovers were a killer as well uh, particularly in the first quarter as miami put up those 38 points they gave up a few runouts uh the, the bucks really started very discombobulated i mean it was a 38 29 first quarter which uh and the bucks won the next three quarters but not by enough oh one other thing we didn't mention this game we talked about bam fouling out was the absolute chin rocker that he had on chris middleton in this one yeah that was a huge play too i mean the bucks really had some advantages in the fourth first they had a five-point possession to actually take the lead at the start of the quarter and then miami when they had the ball committing a flagrant when you have the ball is worse because a you lose possession b the guy shoots free throws and then c you get the ball afterwards so it was a loss of possession and then a four-point possession right after that credit the bucks for scoring on those plays but yeah i mean that was part of what helped milwaukee get back into it but even with the benefit of that of course and uh the screw-ups by miami at the end it was uh it wasn't enough um we got a lot of stuff from bucks fans who are you know the more star in your eyes types maybe not the type who would actually subscribe to our podcast but uh, or at least uh subscribe to dunked on prime who are like oh the brogdon not bringing back brogdon come on you guys are so so hard on them they had one of the best ever regular seasons i think they might be able to use malcolm brogdon in this series what do you think danny no i I think that the first round pick that they got for him that they didn't end up turning into anything is really going to help milwaukee in the series (laughs) now they got two seconds as well but yeah and now you can say if you want to say within ownership's cost constraints that that was the right move i find that a little more plausible i still don't think that it was frankly but then you also need to blame ownership for having those cost constraints at a time when oh they're so dedicated they'll do anything to keep Giannis. they're never going to get another player like Giannis. well no they won't in fact do anything to keep Giannis. they won't spend money <laughs> yeah because they could they could have kept him they could have kept brogdon they could have had enough for lopez they could even in fact have brought back george hill uh they would have just had to guarantee a little bit more money in his third year hollinger has talked about that so uh I think like Brogdon's cap hold was, you know, would would have reduced Hill's contract by like 2 million in the first year, but they could have made up that 2 million to him uh, by guaranteeing more in the third year potentially. And yeah, you know, they probably would have been in the tax, but 
you know you want to win an nba championship that's the stakes uh and they may still get out of this series i'm as i said i'm not writing them off i think they have about as good a chance as you could hope for for a team that's down 2-0 and iguodala being out is not going to help either but yes when you see them struggle to score like this i think malcolm brogdon could have been helped particularly when you look at the series that brogdon just had he was one of the only good players for the pacers in the series against miami just now so uh anything else on this one or are we uh we good to go to the clippers denver preview no i'm good all right well one thing that is also good is dunked on prime dunked on dot supporting cast dot fm is where you can sign up link is in the show notes you only have now a few more days once the day turns over to september 8th pacific time the pre-sale shall be no more but you still have plenty of time to do it you can get a year membership at the lowest price we will ever offer and you will be locked in at that price forever a lot of people are taking advantage of it we're really happy about that to have all of you on board we've already got some special content that and there's more of course on that in my pinned tweet so make sure you read that there's an faq linked uh in the article that's in my pinned tweet as well and once more for those of you who are in a difficult financial situation just send us an email at dunkedonprime at gmail.com and that will become available as of september 8th so we'll get back to you then uh just you know you don't have to write a whole sob story just a couple of sentences on where you're at and we'll hook you up with that pricing we aren't going to give you the third degree we trust you to be honest about your situation so we've got a lot of people uh that were happy to be able to help out in that way you've already asked for it so we'll uh i encourage you to do that if you're feeling like you're just not in a financial position to afford the normal price and that'll be available as of september 8th we'll get back to you shortly after that if we can't uh right now because we've gotten a few of those requests and obviously we have to watch playoff games and stuff too so uh sorry if we haven't got gotten back to you on that we definitely man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique mattresses everybody sleeps differently and helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're be like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk Clippers and Denver right now. I feel the same way as Jamal Murray when he, on SportsCenter when he got asked about playing again in two days against the Clippers and his face just fell like he couldn't believe that he had to play again so quickly this has been an incredible pace so far and now we got to talk about this Clippers Denver series we got asked in the NBA cast yesterday whether we thought Utah or Denver would be a tougher matchup for the Clippers I'm not sure that either of them is going to be particularly difficult but I do think that Denver gives them a few more problems yeah it'll be interesting because really the two largest threats when Denver has the ball are Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. And with Paul George at this point in his career being better on kind of larger guys than on on, on smaller guys, I, I, I still think he'll have the assignment sometimes, especially depending on how Patrick Beverly's looking game by game. The preliminary stuff that we got from Doc Rivers is that he expects Patrick Beverly to play, but he won't guarantee it. Of course, this is more than a day in advance, but that's that's kind of a good proxy for where Beverly is physically. So with, with Murray, I think they have some stuff, but for Jokic, this puts a lot on Zubats, Montrez, Harrell, and one of the interesting questions in the series, we saw Utah for a stretch of time in the second quarter of Game 7 go small with Royce O'Neal at center, is how comfortable is Doc Rivers going small and still capably defending if Jokic is playing heavy minutes? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting, and because Harold can't guard Jokic in the post. Zubats, I'm not sure. I, have to, I think that he has the size, but I'm not sure he quite has the mobility, the ability to uh, avoid fouling. I mean, Jokic, before he ran up against Rudy Gobert, was killing everyone in the bubble. I think he's now, hopefully he's not completely exhausted for Denver's sake, but I think he's going to really have an excellent matchup to eat in this series. And the support players for Denver are going to have to continue to hit shots at the rate that they did before Game 7. I don't know if that's going to happen or not for Denver. But I think the defensive plan is going to have to be for the Clippers to double-team a fair amount, fly around. Um, if they do go with Harrell at center, there'll be a question of whether Harrell is back to really his regular season self or not. By now, he's had plenty of time to rest and recover. So if that's the case, you know, that they may, as you alluded, either with Harrell or with Marcus Morris or Jermichael Green at center, just try to space Jokic out and say, hey, Denver, like, you don't have the horses to keep up with us in an offensive game, even if we're going to have to double-team Jokic. Something else that I think is going to be interesting and telling when Denver has the ball is how often can they get out and run? In all previous years under Mike Malone, you know, with this iteration of the of the Nuggets, they were top top 10 in terms of lowest proportion of plays in the half court. That's what you're looking for because transition opportunities are superior to half court possessions. And Denver the last four years has had a, you know, top half, often a top 10 half court offense. And when you look at the stats, when Jokic is on the floor, I believe that goes even stronger, but that's going to be their point of greatest advantage against the Clippers. The Clippers discipline can be there sometimes. I mean, when they get back, when Doc Rivers teams do that, I think that they'll be okay. But also remember who, like who's going to be pushing and what opportunities will be there. And I'm interested in the transition because I think Denver will have some hate will make some hay with Jokic but the proportion of those two I think is going to be an important factor 
Yeah, I don't see them running a lot actually. To to be honest, I mean, no, I, see, I don't either. But I think yeah. it's. I think though, I don't think they'll run enough. That's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, no, I, I I could see that, but I mean, they don't really have anyone who's just like going to push the ball down your throat on this team. And Jokic can throw it ahead. They got some nice transition stuff in Game One against the Jazz, but they don't force a ton of turnovers. At least uh, with some of their base groups, um, you know, if they get certain lineups on the floor, then maybe they can get that a, a little bit more. So. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that's where you're going. Is that that's not going to be a huge factor against the Clippers? It wasn't really for Dallas either. You know, Dallas is not a big running team as well, but it's obviously an excellent half court team. And this is going to be a completely different defensive challenge for the Clippers. And I think you know what they really are going to want to do is Kawhi Leonard and Paul George flying around and Beverly too. I mean, he's going to be huge. I'm sure he'll start off on Jamal Murray and just try to get through screens in more of a conventional style with Zubats guarding Nikola Jokic. And then if they need to double team on Jokic, then they can hope that they can use these long athletes to fly around, run guys off the line, or allow some of these guys who've been pretty iffy shooters, you know, Millsap, Grant shot well in the playoffs, but he's not a great shooter overall. Gary Harris is, was totally broke in uh, the two games he was back, although he was great defensively. So I... Uh, really their only reliable three-point shooter that is like really a plus guy you would say is Murray despite the crazy percentage that they shot in the first round so I think the Clippers are going to trust the regular season numbers on that and double team make them hit shots and then even if they are starting to hit shots they got guys who can really close out to the three-point line so I, I I'm very curious to see what I mean, I think that's that end of the court is going to determine whether this series is at all competitive. Because to me, I just don't see Denver stopping the Clippers very much. Uh, right. Maybe I'll end up wrong on that, but uh, I think that's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of problems for Mike Malone to put out there. So, uh, what do you think ends up happening on the Denver offensive end? Are they going to be able to score against these guys or not? I think they'll I think they'll be able to have some some real moments because the Clippers personnel isn't great for what Denver wants to do. I think that they're you know, they'll create some advantages, but that leads into what I think is the most interesting kind of overall question in this series. There are a lot of things that I feel somewhat confident in in this series, but is what does Mike Malone do in terms of personnel? So this has come up a lot in the Oklahoma City Houston series. It's been a Sam Presti staple for years, but the Denver Nuggets have a fair number of, they're not necessarily one-way players, but they're definitely not two-way players. You know, like Torrey Craig is an example there. Gary Harris, you know, he was a two-way player, but then his jump shot abandoned him not only in the bubble, but also before that. I mean, this whole season has been a shooting struggle for him. Yeah, I mean, and, my default is that he's not going to shoot it well until he proves differently. Exactly, and and so some of it seems seem because what's interesting about Denver, you know, I think this is the bridge between when each team has the ball is Denver's best defensive personnel doesn't really defend the Clippers' best personnel well. So does Mike Malone? Well, well is that true? I mean, who, I mean, who are you saying there? Like, do you think Gary, do you trust Gary Harris on Paul George? Like, do you, is Gary Harris is a smaller net benefit on the? I mean, unless we're talking about Lou Williams and some of those against the Clippers' best players than he is against the Jazz because Donovan Mitchell is more, you know, in his in his sweet spot defensively. And I thought Harris did a yeah. wonderful job. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think that Lou Williams, Gary Harris is probably a pretty good matchup, but I would say, although Gary can foul a little bit and Lou is cratched with drawing fouls, so that might be one of Like, do you trust Gary Harris or, or Torrey Craig on Paul George? Like, I don't trust either of them on Kawhi at all, and that's a big part of what we'll get to on the other well, side. Well, but- I, I imagine it's going to be Grant starting off on, on Kawhi. I actually think Grant 
you know, no one is going to shut down Kawhi probably, or very few people are going to. But I actually think Grant in an ISO is a pretty good matchup. Yeah. Uh, like Grant is a solid ISO defender against. Like he's got a lot of size and a lot of athleticism. No, but, and, but here, kind of. I, I think I should maybe I should lay out where I was going. I was kind of setting a table, but I guess I didn't do a good enough job, which is fine. Um, well, where I was well, getting or, at is, is, the, my, is, the, is the Michael Porter Jr. part of this. So basically, my theory of the case is Denver isn't going to do a great job defending the Clippers. They'll do a pretty good job you know and they in their base alignments but then it becomes if you don't have a great player for let's call it Paul George or you know like some some, and the Clippers have guys like like Marcus Morris who you know you want to put somebody on but you don't have to do it I think there's more of an opportunity if his jump shot is falling which it hasn't been the last couple games for somebody like Michael Porter because you you to me if you you do the best you can defensively and then you shift offense if it were me and Mike Malone doesn't work, his his approach is not nearly the same as mine. And then try to force the Clippers to scramble a, a little bit, make life a little bit harder on them. I think he's going to shift the other way, just as Malone did in game seven against the Jazz. But the, I'll use the term David strategy, you know, like when you're the underdog, I think that you go for the, like go for the offensive based strategy because you're not going to be able to sufficiently stop. Them. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I do think they're probably going to go with the same guys that they did at the end of that series that, because you know Malone is a defensive coach and they played some of the worst defense we've ever seen when Porter's in the starting lineup granted he looked better against some of their their backups I I think you'll probably go with the the same group uh and you know maybe Harris comes in to the starting lineup uh, potentially uh, and maybe he'll he'll just go with the guys who are out there at the end maybe Harris would replace Millsap in the starting lineup or maybe he would leave Harris to match up more with Lou Williams off the bench that might be uh, the question but i think there's, there's a lot of a, a lot of these matchups i don't have a great feel for in terms of like whether someone can defend someone one-on-one like i don't know about gary harris and paul george like paul george struggled other than one game really in that dallas series and dallas you know they didn't they weren't guarding it with anyone good right it was tim hardaway and like you know gary harris is better than tim hardaway he's the same size and he's way more intense uh and way better hands and so you know maybe they just say hey we're gonna have gary harris deny paul george the ball and just take him completely out of the series uh, or match up against him uh, when it's the paul george only bench units so i I don't know i mean if paul george really has it going like he you think he has the size advantage on gary harris but with the way Paul George is playing now, Gary Harris might be able to stop him. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, you know, is Kawhi going to just completely cook Jeremy Grant? I think he'll completely cook Tory Craig. Uh, but Jeremy Grant, can he just go at him in an ice or are they going to have to do some other stuff like pick and roll? Which, you know, Grant that's where Grant's a little weaker getting through a screen. And so that's probably where I would try to attack it if I were the Clippers. Um, and then the other thing that's going to be really interesting when the Clippers have the ball is their ball movement and their passing is not amazing. And the default pick and roll defense we've seen denver change this up a billion times but where they settled by the end of that utah series that worked pretty well was again having Jokic up on the ball putting two on the ball in pick and roll and lou williams is not an unbelievable passer unless it's the pocket pass um particularly when the clippers have their starters out there you know is zubats really a great guy making a play on a short roll like maybe not uh harrell is you know if you can get it to harrell on the short roll in a four on three he's just going to go right downhill and score on you if he's right which we don't know if he's going to be um you know marcus morris is not a great passer Kawhi is solid but not amazing uh and you know, i guess if beverly's back in the starting lineup like he can move the ball a little bit but there isn't this is not a clippers team where you're like oh man and they are just moving the ball so fast. Once you get two on the ball, they're just uh, slicing you up. Uh, so 
that, that's gonna be interesting I, I think the Clippers are gonna be able to score pretty well but maybe we'll have an adjustment period for them where they're like okay this is totally different than Dallas we got to move the ball a little bit more we got to get more shooting on the floor and they'll they'll be a period where they don't look as good as what we've expected I think there will be a an adjustment period for the Clippers but what will kind of offset that in the early days is the let's call it the rest advantage I mean the Clippers have played if I'm correct me if I'm wrong but I believe they played one game in the last six days because of the because of the stoppage and because they they dispatched the Mavericks in one additional game whereas the Nuggets just played two insanely strenuous games against the Utah Jazz which they ended up pulling out and so I I think that that combined with an, an idea that I posited going back to like game three of Nuggets Jazz was whoever wins that series is going to face a real adjustment because the talent level and personnel and, and all that in, in of the Clippers of their next opponent is so much better. And so I think that you're right. I think that it's possible that games one and two of this series are more competitive, but that adju- to me, the adjustment that the Clippers face is less dom- is less daunting than the one that the Nuggets face. No, I, I, and the Clippers clearly have way more talent. Like they're going to win this series absent any kind of just insane injuries but I guess the point I'm trying to make is and I don't know if I even believe this point but there are some theories of how Denver could cause them some problems going through Jokic on the offensive end I don't think that Murray is going to have that great of a series because the Clippers just have too many guys with a lot of size to slow him down Um, and also you know who knows how bad that uh, thigh contusion that he got from Joe Ingles is going to be looked limited by that that's the kind of thing that can really stiffen up over a couple of days and uh, there's the exhaustion factor as well the fact that he's really the only guy in this Denver team who can do anything off the dribble Um, so they have to run everything through him and the Clippers have a ton of guys starting with Beverly and then George and even Kawhi if they have to uh, who can really just wear him down um, and there's a, there's also a possibility they could do more switching as well uh, with some smaller groups but Jokic is the guy who I really I'm not sure that they are going to have an answer for he'll be able to get more going in pick and roll he'll be able to get more going in the post I don't know if he's going to continue to shoot the ball this well which really saved them because he couldn't post up very well against Rudy Gobert until like the last five minutes of game seven but there is like a theory of how things can work that the Clippers are gonna have to adjust to they don't have perfect personnel for and then same thing with you know the Nuggets particularly with this group that they've settled on they've got a fair number of guys more than Dallas certainly that can credibly guard the Clippers main guys on the other end and then they also in pick and roll are going to try to fly around and put two on the ball and make the Clippers beat them with the pass which in theory they're not the greatest at so I think they're going to adapt they'll be fine but you know is it going to be a four or five game that's kind of where I am but I do want to talk a little bit about the bench matchups we haven't talked about that at all yet Um, we've really talked more about the starters and so the Lou Williams Harrell Jermichael Green against you know Porter Plumlee Monte Morris that that's going to be an interesting matchup I think that's advantage Clippers if again Harrell uh, can play better than he played in the Dallas series well and I, I think Plumlee's aggressiveness could work against him with Harrell you know I think that he could be get get some fouls which could be potentially be lead some some lingering effects for the Clippers in those second and fourth quarters and also remember that if the Clippers force the Nuggets to skew defensive starters versus starters then that means they will have fewer minutes Mike Malone will for his 
best defensive players against Lou Williams and some of those baseline things. So maybe Doc can get back to the Lou Will Harold pick and roll that has has been so effective over the course of the regular season. And I'm very interested in whether Denver can create reliable offense when Nikola Jokic is off the floor. And there is a symbiosis between Jokic and Murray that you want them on the floor because I believe that having having them together makes each one of them more effective. But then that puts a lot on Monte Morris. And yes, it's true. The Clippers bench offense, or sorry, bench defense is very limited. Um, but I still think that Denver is going to have to create good looks. And maybe that falls on Michael Porter Jr. if he's not a starter. But I, I think Denver is going to really struggle to score in those minutes. Yeah, I, I think you, you could well be right on that. And if the Clippers get regular season Montrezl Harrell back, I think this is a sweep uh, because he's going to kill Plumlee. He's way too quick for him. Plumlee will have three fouls in nine minutes every game. Um, he's He can kill Jokic too, who's, you know, uh, he can kill it on the short roll and, you know, be a little bit better defensively. Particularly, you can switch very easily against the Denver second unit when Jokic is out of the game and perhaps Murray as well. So that's going to, would be a big issue for them. If Harrell, you know, because they're, they're still going to try and play Harrell. If he's bad, then, you know, maybe Denver can get a game or two if you know they can hold serve a little bit in the bench minutes but uh i'm not really seeing how particularly denver's second unit is going to cause the problems for harold that dallas did they just don't have that level of guy just attacking the basket and finishing at the rim off the dribble which is where harold was really struggling against luca as you know basically the whole league struggles uh against luca and i think the clippers are going to find the going pretty good here and then and i think uh, on defense because of the lack of spacing and the lack of creators off the dribble that Denver has. And on offense, if Denver is going to stop them, then you've got Craig, Millsap, Grant relying on those guys to go crazy and hit a bunch of shots that's going to be tough too so you know you're kind of running into this problem where you have these one-way players now you know Harris is another one and so if you've got Murray and Jokic and three guys who effectively can't shoot around them then the Clippers they can deal with that so um what's your pick here or is it I think it's actually my turn I I want to say I actually want to say one thing before we get there which is to me the the bright line stat for this series in the regular season Kawhi Leonard played 1836 minutes using I think that uses clean the glasses filter. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Clippers had a 117.3 offensive rating, a 105.7 defensive rating, which means a plus 11.6 net rating. And I don't think this series is where you really need to put the pedal to the metal in terms of Kawhi Leonard, because the, I just don't think the Nuggets are quite that level. But A, they can. And B, the, the Clippers just are so, like, we didn't see it a lot during the regular season, but I think even their, like, fourth gear, much less their fifth, is just so much better than and where this Denver team can go. And there's specifically, you know, imperfect, not terrible, but imperfect personnel for some of that stuff. I think it's just, it. sometimes we make this more complicated than it needs to be. And I, I, I'm not going with, I'm not going with a sweep, but that's something that's lingering heart heavy in my mind. The only thing that's making me not pick the sweep is that I think Doc is going to kind of fuck around at the beginning of the series a little bit, which that I would do the exact same thing in his shoes because you want to try and get some of these guys ready for the Lakers or potentially Houston. Um, well, and not only that, but yeah. Jokic and Murray are players who can just go super hot independent of what's going, you know, what's going on around them. So you could see Murray just hit a bunch of contested shots or uncontested shots if the Clippers defense isn't sharp and win a game or two. Yeah, so I'll go first. I don't care. Um, Clippers in five. I I think that tentatively four is more likely than six, but five feels pretty like a pretty happy medium to me. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one where you're smarter to pick it. This is where I always go wrong, right? You're smarter to pick it in five. But, I mean, really, looking at the talent mismatch, it's a big-time Clippers advantage. And also consider, especially down the end of games, like Murray and Jokic are going to have to play so much. And the Clippers have way more depth than Utah, right? Like, when those guys were playing 42 minutes, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are also playing 42 minutes. You know, they've got Zubats, they've got Harrell, they can go Jermichael Green, they can go Marcus Morris at center. They've got guys like Shamit who can come in off the bench. Reggie Jackson is shooting it well right now. And Denver was winning the bench units against Utah. They had more depth than Utah, even with the injuries that they had, particularly when Harris came back. But I don't really see much way that they're going to win these bench units uh, against the Clippers and so and then if you get close down the end the Clippers are going to be able to really put the hammer down from an effort standpoint which De- you know a gear that Denver doesn't have so <sighs> I guess I'll pick it in five also I I hate it though I really I really want to pick the sweep I really wanted you to pick four because I, I I feel like first of all that then that gives us the two most likely outcomes but also because then you're going to get frustrated when Jamal Murray hits like five shots in a fourth quarter like in a third quarter just like ah oh dude nothing nothing is going to frustrate me as much as not winning that jazz in seven pick like that's that's my worst beat in a long fucking time and danny is now muted due to a siren in the background so that's probably a good place to to end this segment and of course if you are a dunked on prime subscriber you already heard this podcast earlier in the day we early released it as we will be doing for dunked on prime subscribers you only have until september 8th was when we launched so i I guess through the wee hours of september 2nd to get that special pre-sale pricing dunked on that supporting cast.fm the link is in the show notes and we'll talk to y'all tomorrow at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 21 plus only must be present in virginia if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help call 1-800-GAMBLER terms and conditions apply